In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. <laughs> Friends, last week Matt started our series. Uh, we're in the middle of a seven-week series called Living a Sacramental Life. Uh, and he started last week with our first axiom, so to speak, of the sacramental life. Uh, and he talked about how life is all about divine union in love with God and with each other. It's about communion. It's about love. It's about being connected to that which we lost in the fall, which was communion. But Jesus has restored that in the incarnation. And this week, we want to look at a further implication uh, of the incarnation, that this God who has restored communion is with us. That's not just a theory that theoretically now we're connected with God. No, he's actually with us, and he's always working for our good. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it, Jacob exclaims. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Where could I go to get away from your spirit, the psalmist asks. Where could I go to escape from your presence? If I went up to heaven, you would be there. If I went down to the grave, you would be there too. My father is always at work to this very day, Jesus says. So I'm working. And Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know what? This reality that they now live in. The implications of what it means that you're in Christ. The reality of our good news this morning, which is that though we are often blind to it, God our Father is always present with us and working for our good in every circumstance of our lives. Though we are often blind to it, God our Father is always present with us and working for our good in every circumstance of our lives. I grew up in Minnesota. Anybody ever been to Minnesota? All right, we've got a few people. All right. Yeah. It's in the north. Viking country. So I grew up in Minnesota, and uh, ice fishing is a big deal up in Minnesota. Has anybody ever been ice fishing? You guys know what that is? It's kind of a, uh, in my mind, a crazy activity, uh, because people take little tiny boxes that they fit in, like one person fits in a box, sometimes more, but they take these little tiny boxes out onto the ice of these lakes. Minnesota has tons of lakes. And uh, they take these boxes out, and they probably put a little heater in there and probably some beer and some other stuff, and they dig a hole in the ice, and then they put some bait down there, and they try to catch fish in the middle of winter uh, in their little ice houses. So ice fishing is a big deal. Um, but I've never been ice fishing. Um, in fact, an iced-over lake uh, is kind of a scary thing for me. Can anybody relate? Like, how thick is the ice? I mean, you know, like... Who can be sure? And so an iced over lake has always kind of freaked me out. The thought of falling into icy water is terrifying for me. So I'm not sure. Maybe I watched a movie where that happened and it made an indelible impression on my young mind. I'm not sure. But um, I grew up in a little town that had this chain of five lakes. So the whole town was just around these five lakes that was, they were all connected through these channels. Um, and our house was situated kind of between two of these, la two of these lakes. And so it wasn't very far to walk uh, to get to these lakes. And so I, I remember one especially cold winter. I was wandering around, playing outside over Christmas break. Um, this is what kids did in the olden days, by the way. <laughs> Just wandered around, playing outside. They weren't, I mean, you know, I had video games, but it was like I was limited to half an hour. And, you know, they weren't as cool as they are today. So I was wandering around. I was, I was playing outside over Christmas break. Uh, and I found myself at the boat ramp of one of these lakes, you know, where the, you, you put in boats. Um, and so the lake is all iced over. I found myself at the boat ramp, and I thought, I'm going to be brave and try to like get out onto the ice a little ways, right? So with much fear and trepidation, I 
you know, would push my feet out very gingerly, listening for a cracking sound. You know, is the ice going to be thick enough to hold me? And I'd take another step, and I'd take another step. And I thought I was being pretty brave. I was about 10 feet from shore. Where I mean, what's the worst thing that happens? I get some cold feet, right, if I fall in. But I thought I was being pretty brave, but I still felt pretty scared, 10 feet from shore, terrified of falling through the ice, thinking like, wow, this is, I've had quite an adventure today. Um, and suddenly I'm out on the ice, and I hear this sound behind me, and I turn around to see this huge pickup truck towing an ice house. This pickup truck drove right out onto the boat ramp. <laughs> right, like, like 10 feet from me, drove right out onto the boat ramp and like 30 miles an hour, just out into the middle of the lake, this massive truck with this ice house. And I was like, oh. I felt a little sheepish about how scared I was, how brave I thought I was being, right? Um, I was terrified because I had no idea how thick the ice was. I didn't know. I couldn't perceive how safe I really was. So I felt as if I was in danger when I really wasn't, right? The reality was the ice was plenty thick to hold a 2,000-pound truck or how much ever trucks weigh. Um, and the, the, the man in the pickup truck knew that the ice was thick enough to hold him and his truck and his ice house. And so he very confidently drove out onto the lake. His truck didn't create a different situation for him. We were both in the same situation, but we were experiencing it very differently because I didn't know how thick the ice was, and he did. If I could have known how thick the ice was, maybe I would have had more fun, because I could have acted more confidently, knowing that it was plenty safe for me. I'll be held up by this ice. I tell that story because I think something as similar is happening here in Paul's prayer for the Ephesians that we read. Paul's praying not that a new situation will happen for the Ephesians. He's praying that their eyes would be open to the situation that they are currently in. He's praying that they would be able to perceive the depths of the reality that they currently live in. Not that something would change for them, but that would, they would wake up to what's true for them. What God has already done for them in Christ and what is currently available to them because they are in Christ. And so God has already blessed them with every spiritual blessing, the earlier part of this letter goes, in Christ. Just like I couldn't see how thick the ice was, we're so often blind to our true situation in Christ. We have no idea how safe we are. We have no idea how blessed we are. We have no idea how present God is to us and how he's always working for our good. And this is because we've been indoctrinated. Do you guys know you were indoctrinated? You have been. You've been brainwashed by secularism. Secularism is the belief that God is somewhere else doing who knows what, but he's not really involved in the everyday, ordinary stuff of our lives. That's mostly up to us. Our lives are mainly up to us. It's kind of us to, up to us to handle it. You should probably follow God's laws and, and be a good person, and hopefully you'll go to heaven when you die. But God's up there somewhere, in heaven somewhere. We don't know exactly. We try to argue about it, and, but it's really just a theory, right? It's just an idea that we have, that maybe there's, maybe there's a God, and maybe he's good, and maybe he's, you know, but, but he's not really involved with our everyday, ordinary lives. He's up there somewhere, but he's not here. He's not involved. So I want to start today just by asking, where, where are you blind to God's work in your life right now? 
Where do you need to see how God is present with you and working for your good? Maybe you've never really imagined that God cared that much about your ordinary life, the things you like to do, your schedule, your priorities, your money. Maybe you've made God a part of your life, and maybe that's partly because that's easy, he's easier, easier to manage when I can opt in and opt out. Or maybe you've just never imagined that God was interested in your business, in your friendships. Maybe you've just never imagined that he's interested. You've made a God part of your life. Or maybe you're suffering in some way. That's another tough one, isn't it? When we think about, is God present? Is God working on my behalf? Well, what about this suffering? Maybe you've prayed for God to take it away, but it's not going away, and it's difficult to know how God could be present in this situation. Maybe you resent him a little bit for not intervening in ways that you would expect a good God would intervene. But friends, though we are often blind to it, God our Father is always present and working for our good in every circumstance of our lives. Will you open yourself up to this reality today? In the first text that we read, Jacob is running for his life because he just cheated his older brother out of his inheritance with his mom's help. This is a dysfunctional family, friends. He stops at a certain place and he has a dream that reveals what's really going on in this seemingly ordinary place, that God is with him and promising to watch over him and to fulfill all his promises to him. Jacob wakes up and exclaims, the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. That's what his assumption is. This means that God is with me, but I didn't realize it, but now my eyes have been opened. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he renames the place Bethel, which means the house of God. And naming in the Old Testament has everything to do with revealing the true nature of something. And so the reason he names it Bethel is he says, I, I know what this place is now. This is where God lives. This is where God lives. And so we're going to rename this place the house of God. It isn't that God showed up there. It's that Jacob woke up, ironically, while he was sleeping, to God's presence in that place. And in our gospel reading, Jesus responds to the Pharisees who are persecuting him because he's healing on the Sabbath. Jesus tells them, I, look, I'm only doing what I see my father doing. Isn't that a brilliant phrase? That Jesus, it reveals this reality that Jesus is living in where he's not like, I got my orders and I know what to do. I'm working for God here. He's not working for his father. He's working with his father. He's like, my father's always working. I'm just seeing it and participating. I'm just seeing it and participating in it. And Jesus invites us into that same kind of relationship with God. That wasn't just for Jesus. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you'll do the same things I've done. Jesus shows us what it's like to be human. And as we'll talk about next week, he also shows us what, who God is. That's the brilliance of Jesus. He shows us what God is. He shows us what humanity is. He shows us who God is as a human. It's kind of mind-blowing. So Jesus invites us into that kind of relationship, paying attention to God our Father who's always present, who's always at work, and we offer ourselves, we learn to do this, um, to participate more deeply in this life that he extends to us. Because, friends, though we're often blind to it, God our Father is always present with us and working for our good in every circumstance of our lives. But our problem, as I alluded to earlier, is that we're blind to it. It's not our, pro our problem is not that we need something to change for us. Our problem is that we need to wake up to what's true for us 
right now. And this is the reason that Paul prays for the Ephesians. We've been brainwashed by secularism. Uh, the Ephesians were brainwashed by who knows what else, paganism, all, all kinds of stuff that they came from where they were blind to their true situation. And so Paul, he says uh, to them, every day I'm praying for you, that you would know that the God who calls us into communion is here with you, that he's working on your behalf, that the ice is thick enough to hold you. You're safe. You're blessed. Everything is going to be okay. And so Paul prays, there's a beautiful phrase where he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Think about that. Like my my heart has eyes. It has a, a way to perceive things. And Paul says, I pray that they would be lit up. Your heart eyes would be lit up, that they'd be able to perceive what's true, really true about your life, that they would know the hope to which they've been called, that death has been defeated and won't have the last word, that everything sad is going to come untrue, that they'll know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints with all God's people, that they'll know the incomparably great power that God gives to us for our good, that same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavens at God's right hand, that power doesn't seek to control, it doesn't seek to dominate, but it seeks to bless, it seeks to name, it seeks to liberate. That power is available to us because Christ The risen Christ has ascended to fill all things. And we are organically connected to him now. We're his body. He's the head. That's an image that speaks of unity. It speaks of an organic connection. And so if you can believe it, Christ is here. He's with us. He has risen to fill all things. All creation is filled with the presence of Christ. And because we're connected to him organically, the power of God is flowing from Christ to you this very second. It's right here. It's available. Where could we go to escape from this presence? Where could we hide from this white hot love? It's everywhere. Everything is burning with the glory of the Lord, as we sang earlier. Friends, though we are often blind to it, God our Father is always present with us, and working for our good in every circumstance of our lives. This is why we start our worship services with silence, for example. One of the things that happens in silence is we just, you'll notice most Sundays, we proclaim the hereness of God, right? We don't say, let's be quiet so that God will come, (laughs) right? Like he's shy. But we say, let's be quiet so that we can become present to the God who is present to us. So we proclaim the hearness of God, and then we take a moment or two in silence to just still our minds, quiet our hearts, breathe a couple times, and just be present, because God's here. We don't have to do anything to achieve it. He's just here. It's part of his grace that he gives us. He's he's always here. We aren't asking God to show up. Instead, we are waking up to what is true before we got here, that God is present and calling us into communion. And this isn't an abstraction. I think this is important as well to note. It's not an idea that we assent to. Right? We don't start our services by saying, guys, God is always present and at work. Raise your hand if you agree. And everybody agrees and we got it. Nailed it. Right? No, it, it's, con- it's more concrete than that. That's why we actually practice the silence. Right? That's why I actually make the sign of the cross. That's why we actually come. We, it's not enough to just sit in your seat, right, and say, well, I know Jesus died for me. I don't need communion today. No, we come and we encounter him in the bread and in the wine. God communicates his presence to us 
in ordinary everyday stuff. And this sacrament around the table is not meant to be a place where we contain God so that the only time we encounter God is once a week on a Sunday morning, but it's meant to explode into the whole world so that everything becomes a sacrament. My neighbor becomes a sacrament. My kids become a sacrament. My friendships become a sacrament. Everything can become a sacrament. So the question for us, do you believe in God? That's not an abstract question. For us, it's believe in him. We eat his flesh and drink his blood every Sunday. I'm not trying to be fickle. I'm trying to be real. That's reality. Believe in him. I don't even need to believe in him. I receive him. I eat and drink of him. The Christian faith, friends, is simply that God is with us. Nothing, can, nothing is ever going to change that. The Christian life is lived moment by moment in union with God and in harmony with creation. Every concrete moment of our lives, even our sufferings, is Bethel. It's the house of God. It's the place of communion. It's the place where God is present and working for our good. Amen? So how do we respond to this? Let us pray for God to open our eyes and see how he's present and at work in our lives. Let us stop discarding the everyday, ordinary moments of our lives as merely secular. Let us stop seeing our sufferings as proof of God's absence. Instead, let us learn to recognize God's presence in these concrete, everyday moments of our lives, in our daily work, in our joys and tribulations, in our parenting, in our friendships, in our mealtimes, in our bedtime routines, but also in our fear and in our shame, in our frustrations, in our arguments, in our chronic pain, in our loneliness and despair, and even in our sins. It isn't that God said, let these things be, but in the midst of these things that are, God is here, and God is working for our good. These moments are our lives. They're the actually only place that God can meet us because they're the concrete moments of our lives. So for me right now, for example, I've got a lot of irons in the fire. There's a lot going on in my life, a lot of different uh, areas. And sometimes for me, I feel pressure and anxiety to sort of meet all of these people's expectations. And my temptations are either to power through or to procrastinate. Can I get a witness? <laughs> but this is living a secular life. Well, this is up to me. What can I do? I can power through or I can just avoid these things and just feel good for a second. Instead, I'm learning to meet God there in the anxiety and in the pressure and actually pray. I think sometimes we say, oh, I'll pray for you. And then what we mean is I'll worriedly think about you a little bit. But no, we, pack, we actually pray, and so I pray. I pray something out loud, like, God, I'm feeling anxious today about this upcoming project or trip. I trust that you're present with me in this and working for my good. What do you want me to know about this? Where's this anxiety coming from? What, what are you doing? What's happening right now? Sometimes I'll call a friend and say, can you help me? This is why we come to church, friends. <laughs> this is why we uh, learn how to pray every day. It's not about pleasing God. It's about waking up about learning to be present to the God who is present to us. This is why we get into DNA groups, so our eyes can be opened. We can learn to meet God in these everyday, concrete, ordinary moments of our lives. And friends, as we learn to respond in these concrete ways, we begin to unlearn the heresy of secularism. We begin to unlearn it deep in our bones, and we start to trust that the ice is really thick enough to hold us.
We discover how safe we really are, how loved, how blessed. We meet Christ in those moments. And we learn to really trust that God is always present and working for our good in every circumstance of our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.